This is the podcast for the journal Genetics and Medicine, published by The Nature Publishing Group. It's the official peer-reviewed journal of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics. I'm Cynthia Graber. Direct-to-consumer genetic tests are becoming more and more popular. Today, they're largely advertised to test a consumer's ancestry, though that's starting to change. But even for people who paid for ancestry tests, they may go a step further, says Stephanie Tandy Connor, supervisor of the Cancer Genetic Counseling Reporting Team at Ambry Genetics. Or they're going to that testing company and saying, I would like to have my raw data file. And the consumer is absolutely, in all ways, legal ways, they are able to get that information. It's their genetic information. The consumer then sends that raw data to a third-party interpretation service to take a closer look. And then that consumer receives a consumer-friendly report. So they'll say, okay, this particular line in the VCF file says you have this particular alteration in this gene, and we're saying it's classified as a mutation, or maybe it's a variant of unknown significance, or maybe it's completely benign, like it just depends on what their databases are telling them. Scientists at Ambry noticed that they were getting an increasing number of tests submitted by clinicians whose patients had come to them with concerns about interpretations from direct-to-consumer companies or from those third-party interpretation services. The clinicians wanted the lab at Ambry to reevaluate the assessment to determine if the alterations noted were in fact cause for concern. So for their recent study, the scientists at Ambry decided to go back through their files to find just these situations. They pulled together 49 cases and then evaluated those 49 cases to determine what classifications the third parties were giving for genetic alterations and how many times there were false positive calls. So we found that overall we had in our cohort we had 40% of the alterations come back as false positives, meaning 40% of the specific alterations that a patient thought they may or may not have turned out to be false positives from the raw data. And then stemming off of that, we looked at the classifications that were provided to the patient from these third-party uh, interpretation services And, you know, we just wanted to make sure they were giving accurate information to the patient on their end as well. And we found that there were, you know, several different alterations that they, you know, said you're at increased risk for this disease based on this alteration. But if you go and look at any of the, you know, well-known reputable databases, it's obviously benign. Mike Fries, director of diagnostic laboratories at the Greenwood Genetic Center, wrote a commentary accompanying the AMRI paper. Is the 40% false positive rate as high as it seems? Oh, it's extremely high. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what percent anyone's comfortable with, but it should be virtually 0% in, in saying that. Obviously, mistakes and, and technical errors can be made on, on multiple levels, but the quality assurance and quality management programs of most laboratories should be able to take most of those concerns into account and safeguard against having such a false positive rate. So why the huge rate of false positives, as well as the missed classifications? There's problems everywhere. <laughs> so there's problems with the raw data, and that's, that's not necessarily just DTC raw data. Raw data in general is dirty. I mean, it's, it's dirty whether it comes from a DTC or a clinical laboratory. The difference is a clinical laboratory in terms of reporting, we'll always use a secondary method to confirm alterations before they tell a patient that they have something. So raw data being dirty is nothing new. Everybody who's been in the science community knows that. But when a consumer asks for it, they may or may not be aware of that information. 
then when you go to the third-party interpretation services, they are giving interpretations based on usually publicly available databases, which clinical labs do sometimes use. We're picky about which ones we use because they have to be vetted and they have to be reputable and well-curated, but we also use other lines of evidence to classify something. It's not just databases that we base our our variant classification on. Variant classification can get very complex. So it's not as easy as just running something through a database and spitting out some information, which is what a lot of the third-party interpretation services do. Of course, clinical tests are significantly more expensive than direct-to-consumer tests and nearly free third-party interpretation services. You know, there's a reason that clinical tests are really expensive because it takes a lot of time to run full diagnostic sequencing and deletion duplication analyses, and then also not only just run it, but have somebody interpret it and interpret it in a, you know, a highly sophisticated way. So that's why they're expensive, because it takes a lot more time and energy to produce those reports versus something that's coming out of a direct-to-consumer test or a third-party interpretation service. So data from the DTC tests are suspect, and the interpretations of third-party services are suspect. But this 40% false positive rate in what a consumer would consider a medically concerning alteration could have significant implications. If somebody takes their, their information from their raw data you know, and or their third-party interpretation, um, if they just take that at face value and they don't have it clinically confirmed, there could be huge ramifications, uh, you know, depending on what the gene is that's involved and, and what the classification is that the patient believes they have. I mean, sometimes this can change medical management drastically. You could be talking about doing surgeries. You could be talking about changing screening protocols, you know, dietary changes. I mean, it it could have a really large impact on a patient and the family, not only physically with all those changes in medical management, but also, you know, psychologically, there's some of these are pretty heavy topics to, to work through. That all then ripples down into like society in general and the cost of medical care in general, because if all these people are undergoing these unnecessary surgeries and unnecessary screenings, that's money coming from the insurance companies and the hospitals. And so it it does kind of ripple out. These types of results seem to indicate that medical geneticists and clinical labs were correct to be concerned. Concerned about either wrong information or taking information that has limitations to its clinical utility and extending those interpretations into something that makes it seem more important than it really is. And so it it comes on multiple fronts. Some of it's just the analytical precision of, of the result itself. And then secondly, just how clinically meaningful some of those results may actually be. We've heard it at conferences before. We've heard physicians say like, oh, I'm not gonna order genetic testing because I had my patient do a direct to consumer test. And you know, jaws hit the floor. You know, it's like, that's not the same thing. Both say more research is needed, perhaps a larger cohort than the Ambry Lab study, and cohorts from other labs that may also have received requests for second opinions from clinicians whose labs believe that they have a worrisome genetic aberration. But most importantly, Tandy, Connor, and Fries say that education is critical, not only for clinicians, but for consumers, because consumers likely think that getting raw data back from direct-to-consumer tests means that the data are complete and accurate. When uh, somebody asks for their raw data, We've talked to patients who thought like, oh, well, I, I know that the direct-to-consumer test was not comprehensive. I, I'm aware of that. So I asked for my raw data because that is comprehensive. And it's like, 
no, that's not how it works either. You know, so it's, it, there's, there's a lot of education that needs to go into a lot of different areas. It's certainly a slippery slope in terms of everyone feeling that it's their information, it's their personal genetic code that should be their right to have access to. But the concern from the medical side is just how people go about using that information and being very careful. And, you know, the the medical side is often really considered to be excessively paternalistic. But I think there's just so many examples that people have in terms of people misusing or misinterpreting or just not fully understanding the depth of what some of that genetic and genomic information really actually may mean for them and their family. They really need to understand the caveats that go along with this information. And if they're really concerned about something in their personal or family history, you know, they need to talk about doing a bigger test, perhaps something more that includes different genes, different disease types. This is not the way to go at this point in time if you're concerned about something medical. That's not what these tests are for. And education may be even more critical and challenging as companies continue to advertise their products direct to consumers. Regulation of direct-to-consumer products and advertising may be another critical piece of this as well. Genetics in Medicine is the official peer-reviewed journal of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics and is published by The Nature Publishing Group. I'm Cynthia Graber.